Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 26 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Jim Gertmanian. I'm senior minister at Plymouth Congregational Church here in Minneapolis and guest moderator for today's forum. The Westminster Town Hall Forum invites those of you who are listening on Minnesota Public Radio to visit us in person. All forums are free and open to the public, and information on upcoming speakers can be found online at eWestminster.org. It is now my pleasure to welcome the first speaker in the forum's two-part series on progressive Christianity. Author, scholar, and bishop, John Shelby Spong is recognized as one of the leading voices for liberal Christianity in America today. Born in 1931 in Charlotte, North Carolina, Bishop Spong was a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of the University of North Carolina and received his Master of Divinity degree from Virginia Theological Seminary. He was consecrated a bishop in 1976 and served for 24 years as a bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Newark, New Jersey before his retirement in the year 2000. He is the most frequently published member of the House of Bishops of the Episcopal Church with more than 90 published articles and 15 books, including This Hebrew Lord, Rescuing the Bible from Fundamentalism, and Why Christianity Must Change or Die. His newest book, Jesus for the Non-Religious, challenges a literal view of the Gospels and rearticulates for the postmodern world, quote, an understanding of the Christian faith that is vastly different from the one expressed in traditional pre-modern concepts. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Bishop John Shelby Spong. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be back in Minneapolis. I was here just two weeks ago. This is one of America's great cities. Even though the Wolverines did not quite live up to that reputation. Timberwolves, not Wolverines, Timberwolves. <laughs> no wonder you didn't respond. We have high hopes for the twins, however. I'm also glad to be at this forum and glad to be associated once again with Minnesota Public Radio. My task today is to examine briefly the theme of my newest book, perhaps to concentrate on one theme in a little more detail. That book is entitled Jesus for the Non-Religious. It was published only eight weeks ago, on the 27th of February of this year. After being out for only three weeks, it was number 29 on the New York Times bestseller list for all books in nonfiction in America. And since that date, the 27th of February, I've been on a book tour which began in Miami and before it is over, we'll cover 20 states, seven countries, and four continents. 
I will return home from this tour on November 1st. Two trips to Minneapolis in the last two weeks is just a little part of that. Let me first engage those who would wonder why anyone would talk about Jesus for the non-religious. And why especially would a Christian bishop talk about Jesus for the non-religious? Why would we want to separate Jesus from religion? Well, there were two reasons. First, the Jesus story was written by the gospel writers in the first century of this common era. It was also written from within a particular cultural perspective, the Jewish world. These concepts were not wrong, but by the 21st century, both the cultural concepts and the first century concepts have become unbelievable to many people. The Gospels, for example, assume that the universe consisted of three tiers, with the earth at its center. Not only did the sun rotate around the earth, but God lived just above the sky. Try to imagine a universe shaped something like this church, and there's the eye of God looking down upon you. And that God was perceived as primarily a judge, watching, keeping record books up to date. And from time to time that God would intervene out of the sky in order to split the Red Sea or to rain heavenly bread called manna upon starving people or to do some other miracle or to answer the prayers of the faithful. And the Jesus story was told in terms of that worldview and of that concept of God. They talked about Jesus as the incarnation of the God who came from above the sky. If God is going to come into this world, there has to be a proper landing field so that God can get in. And that's exactly what the gospel writers created when they told the story of Jesus' miraculous birth. A landing field had to be prepared because God was external to this world. And once we got this external God located in the heart of human history, then the gospel writers portrayed this divine visitor as capable of using godlike power in a wide variety of ways. This Jesus was portrayed as having power over water. He could walk on it. He could still the storm. He had power over nature. He could take five loaves of bread and multiply them magically so that they fed 5,000 not people, but 5,000 men. It was a patriarchal world. Plus, the Bible says, women and children who hardly counted. Since this Jesus was portrayed as a divine invasion, Jesus could do the things that God could do, like heal the sick, restore sight to the blind. In that period of time, before they understood anything about medicine, they regarded all sickness and all infirmity as a sign of God's punishment. 
And so the way it was healed was with divine forgiveness. Your sins are forgiven you, Jesus says to the lame man who then takes up his bed and walks. This Jesus was portrayed as even capable of doing the ultimate thing, like raising one from the dead. Three stories told, one a young child, one a widow's son, and one the famous Lazarus, who interestingly enough is only told about in the last gospel, written between 95 and 100, and yet it's portrayed as having occurred in a very public place at a funeral ceremony with great hosts of people gathered, including Jesus' friends and Jesus' enemies, told in a very dramatic fashion, the door, the stone around the tomb removed, and the body of Lazarus coming forth, still bound with funeral bandages. And nobody thought that was noteworthy enough to talk about it until some 70 years after the event had occurred, and it finally is mentioned in John's Gospel. Interesting how we read the Bible. And then when the work of this invasive deity was complete, and it was completed with his death in the crucifixion, and the story of his triumph over his death in the resurrection, then the Gospel writers portrayed Jesus as returning to God who still lived above the sky. And so they had to have a launching pad, a landing field to get in, a launching pad to get out. It was called the Cosmic Ascension. And the story is told, and it doesn't come into the tradition before the 10th decade, just as the virgin birth doesn't come into the tradition until the ninth decade. The Cosmic Ascension was told of Jesus rising upon from this earth until he disappeared into the sky to return to where God is. Heaven is above the earth. The earth is the center of the universe. And God somehow needs a round-trip ticket to get in and then to get out. <laughs> and in that frame of reference, the Gospel writers told the Jesus story. It would be impossible for them to have told it any other way because that was the way they perceived reality. But my brothers and sisters, that's not the way 21st century people perceive reality. Whether the fundamentalists like it or not, you and I live on the far side of Copernicus and Kepler and Galileo. And we understand something of the vastness of space. Far from being the center of the universe, we see this planet as a tiny little planet revolving around a middle-class star in a galaxy of some 200 billion other stars that we call the Milky Way. And our galaxy is only one of some 200 billion other galaxies in a still expanding universe. So what does it mean to talk about God living just above the sky? We also live on the other side of Isaac Newton. And so we understand something about the way the universe works, something about natural law. And most of the things that we called miracle in the past would be explained in some non-miraculous way in the present. Indeed, the, the whole story of the invasion of God in a miraculous birth and the ascension of this God figure back into the sky 
has become almost nonsensical to modern people. When the story of the virgin birth was first created, no one knew that women were co-creators of every life because no one knew that women possessed an egg cell. Life was thought to dwell in the sperm of the male. The woman was a passive receptacle through which the male's life entered the world. And so if you wanted to tell the story about a divine invader, you never had to get rid of the human mother because she contributed nothing. You only had to get rid of the human father and replace that father with a divine figure. And all virgin birth stories make that assumption. But if women have an egg cell, it means that every life that has ever been born has received 50% of its genetic code from its mother. And so Jesus would have to be, if you want to be biological about the virgin birth, Jesus would have to be half human and half divine. And that's not exactly what the church was trying to communicate. That would make Jesus more like a mermaid. <laughs> not exactly what we were trying to say. What they were trying to say in the first century was in and through the fullness of this human life we believe we have met or experienced that which we can only use the word God to describe. It had nothing to do with biology. And so when people literalize the virgin birth narratives, they produce a monster and not a theological truth. On the other end of the spectrum, the idea that one can rise from this earth and return to God above the sky is completely unbelievable. Carl Sagan said to me on one occasion before he died, you know that if Jesus rose from this earth and even traveled at the speed of light 158,000 miles per second, he has not yet escaped our galaxy. <laughs> we know that if you rise from this earth and go far enough or high enough, you don't get to heaven, you get into orbit. And the idea of Jesus in some sort of perpetual orbit doesn't do a thing for the development of my spiritual soul. And so in so many ways, the religious framework in which the Jesus story has been told for so long has become unbelievable to modern men and women, unless you can lift the experience out of the antiquities of yesterday's explanations. And so in this modern world, we respond to this crisis in two diametrically different ways. The first way is that some of us simply close our minds to the realities of our modern world in order to be able to save our pre-modern religious concepts. And that's what produces fundamentalists and evangelicals and conservative Catholics their minds are made up, they do not want to be disturbed by facts. But the other response, which is probably even greater, certainly in Europe and increasingly so in the United States, is that others of us are now in a position where we can do nothing other than reject pre-modern religion as no longer believable. And if we, there are no alternatives to that kind of religion, and many of the people of our world do not see any other alternatives, 
their choice is to abandon religion altogether, take up citizenship in what Harvey Cox at Harvard called the secular city, and join what I call the Church Alumni Association, <laughs> which is the fastest growing organization in the religious West today. On one other, one other thing, we look at the television evangelist and we see that so many who claim the name of Christian speak with enormous hostility toward various segments of the society. Where did that hostility in religion come from? We simply need to begin to understand that and to admit that. Fundamentalism is not going to carry us, and if we reject all religion, then we must find some other way to live with the realities of our modern world. So I look at religion and I find that I am not attracted to what religion says it is supposed to do. I don't even like religious people. <laughs> and that's an occupational hazard in my profession. <laughs> I find that the more religious people are, the more small-minded they are. I like people who are whole and real and open. And that's exactly what religious people seem not to be in our day and in our age. When you look at the place of organized religion in general and Christianity in particular, when it attracts the attention of the media in this country, it is almost always negative. We get television stories and newspaper stories when we have priests abusing children and making them victims. And the hierarchies of the church respond more to protect the reputation of the church than the lives of their own victims. We see a great debate going on in our society with primarily male hierarchical ecclesiastical figures regularly pontificating in the name of a male god called Father about what it's moral for a woman to do with her own body in the reproductive process. With not a single woman around to participate in that discussion. That's clearly playing the game Father knows best. We see religion in the public media today when one of our television evangelists like Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson or maybe even the Reverend Fred Phelps of Kansas whose website is entitled GodHatesFags.com and who recently said in a clip that I saw in Minneapolis that gay men ought to be castrated with rusty barbed wire. 
and he speaks in the name of Christ. Or we listen to conservative members of Christian churches that would rather see their church divided and split into civil war than to see gay and lesbian people openly accepted and welcomed as children of God. And we listen to the statements of Benedict XVI, who seems to believe that homosexuality is some deviant and unnatural condition, which is, by everything I know about modern science and medicine, breathtakingly ill-informed for a public figure. We find that in America's support for the Iraq war, which is sinking beneath the radar screen, that the only place where this war is still popular and still supported is in the religious right. Why, we ask, does religion always seem to encourage us to have a victim? Increasingly, Christianity in the public arena is identified with closed-mindedness, with hostility towards someone who is considered inferior, with angry faces. Sometimes when I have nothing better to do, I'll turn on a television evangelist and turn the sound off <laughs> and simply watch the body language. I wonder how anybody thinks they can communicate the love of God with a snarling face and a pointing finger and with a message that everyone who disagrees with that preacher is bound for the torments of an eternal hell. I seek a Jesus who is not identified with that kind of religion. I sometimes wonder what there is about the Christian religion that creates in us such killing anger. It seems that it's always been part of our tradition. Christianity, when looked at historically, always seems to have a victim. It was first the Jews. Anti-Semitism is present in the Gospel writings, particularly the Fourth Gospel. Anti-Semitism was rampant in the early fathers of the Christian church, people like Jerome and Polycarp and Tertullian and Chrysostom. Christianity found a new way to express its hostility in the Crusades, not just against the infidel Muslims for which the Crusades were organized, but we killed any infidel we found along the way, and they were mostly the Jews. Christianity in the 14th century blamed the Jews for the outbreak of the bubonic plague and responded with the worst outbreak of anti-Semitism until Adolf Hitler topped it in the 20th century. In the history of the great Christian nations of the world in Western Europe, every one of them either expelled the Jewish population from their ranks at some point in history or ghettoized them within certain prescribed areas so that they were not allowed to be part of the body politic of that nation. Even when you come to the great Christian leaders of the Reformation like Martin Luther, 
you will find that his anti-Semitism is so deep that it is an embarrassment to Lutheran people. The American Evangelical Lutheran Church has even apologized for the anti-Semitic rhetoric of their great founder. When we did not have Jews to victimize, we Christians victimized heretics. Imagine that. We think we can define God, and then if anyone disagrees with our human definition, we burn them at the stake. Is that rational? That strange, bizarre, but very religious behavior. We even rejected the scientists of the world. After all, we said in the 17th century, if God can stop the sun in the sky, creating the first instance of daylight saving time so that, so that Joshua has more sunlight to kill more of Joshua's enemies, then Galileo cannot be right. And Galileo barely escaped with his life. I was happy that in 1991, the Vatican issued a statement in which they said, we now believe Galileo is right. <laughs> he jolly well better be. We had been doing space travel for some years before they came to that conclusion. If Galileo were, Galileo were wrong, we would have bumped into the ceiling of the sky and had gone to heaven, I suspect. We also victimized women. It is primarily the Christian church throughout history that has defined women as subhuman. Women could not vote in this country until 1920 in a federal election. The great negativity, the argument against women voting was that women were not bright enough. They might elect the wrong man. Do you suppose males have never elected the wrong man? <laughs> Women might not vote the way their husbands tell them to vote. You can't count on them. Do you know there's only been one election in American history since 1920 where the vote of the women actually elected the president? Only one. If the women had not voted, Robert Dole would have been the president in 1996. So women are responsible for electing the single president who has the greatest reputation as a womanizer. <laughs> you see how irrational prejudices are. Most religious people have never seen a war they didn't approve. And today, Homosexual people are the primary victims of organized religion. And if you think that pornography is an expression of violence against women, as I do, you might be interested to note that the state of the 50 that consumes more pornographic literature than any other is in the heart of the Bible Belt. It's Alabama. Let me say just a, a sort of autobiographical word. I'm a child of the South. I grew up in the Bible Belt of North Carolina. I grew up in a church that not only practiced segregation, 
but proclaimed that God approved it, quoting the Bible to demonstrate that proof. My church also claimed that men were superior to women and quoted the Bible to prove that prejudice. My church also taught me it was quite all right to hate other religions. They were all pagans anyway, and especially to hate the Jews, and quoted the Bible to prove it. And my church taught me that homosexuals were either mentally sick or morally depraved and quoted the Bible to prove it. Have you ever wondered about the Bible Belt? Have you ever wondered what Bible they read in the Bible Belt? Have you ever noticed that the Bible Belt of the South is coterminous with the slave-holding states of America? Is not slavery an ultimate expression of anger with a victim? And when the Bible Belt of the South was confronted with the defeat in the war and had to end the institution of slavery, they simply adopted slavery's bastard stepchild called segregation and continued their way, still denigrating other human beings. While they were going to church more regularly, reading the Bible more regularly, and being more overtly religious than any other part of the country. And when the segregation laws were broken down by the courts of this country between 1954 and 1965, did the Bible Belt, the Christians, the church-going population of my home region rejoice that one more prejudice has been put aside? No, they brought out fire hoses and police dogs and lead pipes and bombed churches in Alabama killing little girls on Easter Sunday and they were never convicted even though everybody in the South claimed to be Christian. It was fascinating to me that the last person to be convicted of a civil rights murder was Edgar Ray Killen of Philadelphia, Mississippi, convicted in 2005 of the murder of three civil rights workers in the early 60s in Mississippi. He was not convicted because jury after jury after jury was hung. And when he was finally convicted, he was identified in the local press as a member of the Ku Klux Klan and an ordained Baptist preacher. When I look at the South today, my homeland, I find it interesting that the most religious part of the South executes more criminals than the rest of the world put together, at least the rest of the Western world, certainly more than any other state in the Union and all the other states in the Union put together. And I find support for the war in Iraq greater in the South than any other part of the country and homophobia rampant in the South in a way it is not in any other part of the country. Now, where does that come from? Why is it that the religious, overtly religious parts of our nation seem always to have a victim? Well, at least one reason might be in the way we have traditionally understood God. The Christian story encourages us to believe that God is an external, punishing parent, heavenly father. That God's role is to rescue fallen, depraved, sinful, evil human beings. 
We concentrate on our evil. Does it do any good to concentrate on people's evil? Have you ever known anybody to be improved by being told constantly how wretched and evil they are? That's not the way human life works. And that's, that's, that's the message. And so often that's the message that gets communicated in our churches, not just in the South. But it's sort of part and parcel of the way we have proclaimed the Christ story. God is the rescuing deity. Jesus is the divine victim of God. And you and I are the guilt-laden people for whom Jesus had to die. Is that good news? The church knows how to use guilt more than it knows how to use any other emotion. Guilt, the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> when we come to church on Sunday morning, overwhelmingly we hear the message of our depravity. In my church we say such things, or we have our worshipers say such things, as I am a miserable offender. I cannot do the things I need to do. I do the things I do not need to do. There is no health in me. I am not worthy even to gather up the crumbs under the divine table. We can't even sing about how amazing God's grace is without reminding us that the reason God's grace is amazing is that it saves a wretch like you <laughs> or me. And the one thing that almost all churches have in common is that we stand before God in worship and we say, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. In my church we say it nine times every Sunday. What kind of God is it that our primary way of relating is to beg and plea for mercy because we know ourselves and have defined ourselves as so wretched, so miserable, so sinful. We even say that our children are born in sin. I don't believe that. I think they're born with loudspeakers on one end and no sense of responsibility on the other. <laughs> but they are not born in sin. They're born with enormous potential. And somehow we think that it makes that potential better or helps it to be expanded by reminding them of how evil they are. It doesn't work that way. Folks, when human beings feel denigrated constantly, when human beings feel abused constantly, whether it's by a tyrant or by our image of God, we almost always have to pass that denigration and that abuse on. And so denigrated people are likely to become denigrating people. And abused people are likely to become abusive people. And for centuries, we Christians, it seems to me, have been telling people, abusing people in the name of God. And then we are surprised at a history of Christian abuse of others. If you are convinced that you are of little worth, then one of the ways you deal with your own internal trauma is to find a victim who has less worth than you. And then you can build yourself up by tearing that person down 
And that's the nature of human prejudice, which is rampant inside organized religion. And so I ask, is this what the Christian religion has become? And if so, why would anyone want to preserve it? Why do we want to preserve the Christian church if its primary modality throughout history has been to persecute Jews, to burn heretics, to denigrate women, and to reject homosexual people? Who needs it? That's why I felt compelled to write a book that might portray Jesus outside the boundaries of what I think has become a destructive religious pattern of history. And so I want to portray Jesus not as a divine invader who comes to rescue people who are so wretched they only need to be rescued, but I want to portray him as a life that was so whole and so free and so completely human so full that when people met that life, they could see beyond that life and flowing through that life everything that they had ever believed when they used the word God. Perhaps the time has come for us to give up our portrayal of God as a supernatural being who lives above the sky and begin to think of God as something within the very life of our world. None of us can tell another who God is or what God is. I'm always amazed that we human beings think we can do that. A horse could not tell you what it means to be human. I wonder why we think a human being can tell you what it means to be God. That's outside the realm of our possibility. But human beings can describe what they believe is their experience of the holy. That's not who God is. That's what the human experience of God is. There's a vast difference. And I think we do experience God as the power of life that is flowing through the entire universe. I think we experience God as the power of love that is always in the process of enhancing life. I think we can experience God in the words of my great theological teacher, Paul Tillich, as the ground of all being, empowering us to have the courage to be all that we can be. Perhaps it is in the process of living fully that we make God, who is the source of life, visible. Perhaps it is in the process of loving wastefully across every barrier of tribe and prejudice and gender and sexual orientation and all the other things that have separated one child of God from another throughout history. It's in the process of loving wastefully beyond the boundaries that we experience God as the source of love and make that God visible. And perhaps it is when we experiencing God as the ground of being have the courage to be all that we were created to be and then the capacity to allow others to be all that they were created to be in the infinite variety of our humanity. Perhaps that is the way that modern people in the 21st century 
can experience the holy. Perhaps when we look at Jesus, we see a life so fully lived that the source of life becomes visible in him. We see a love that is so wastefully given that we see the source of love present in him. And we see one who is capable of being all that he was created to be when they were trying to make him the king on Palm Sunday and when they were killing him on Good Friday. He is not turned either by the sweet narcotic of human praise nor is he turned by the destructive terror of human beings giving death. He simply is who he is and thus the ground of being becomes visible in him. That's the Jesus I call the Jesus for the non-religious, calling us to live, calling us to love, calling us to be, calling us to build a world where everybody in that world has a better opportunity to live fully and to love wastefully and to be all that they can be, calling us to contend against every human practice that denigrates any child of God. That's the Jesus for the non-religious. That's the Jesus about whom I write. That's the Jesus who draws me deeply into worship. That's the Jesus to whom I witness. And that's the Jesus that I believe holds the key to the future of the Christian faith. And to that Jesus, I dedicate my energy. And to proclaim that Jesus, I speak to the people of the world Jesus for the non-religious attracts me in a way the religious portrait of Jesus never did. Let me sum this up in my favorite text from the Bible. In the fourth gospel, the gospel writer appears to be saying that Jesus is in a conversation with his disciples about what his purpose is. The disciples appear to be asking him that question. Why did you come, Jesus? Did you come to make us more religious? And Jesus says, no, no, I didn't come to make you more religious. There's enough religion in this world today, and most of it is pretty destructive. The world doesn't need more religion. Well, did you come, Jesus, to make us moral and righteous? No, says Jesus. No, my experience with people who are moral and righteous is that they know a great deal about judgment, but they know almost nothing about love. Well, Jesus, did you come so that we would be the true believers and have the orthodox faith? And Jesus says, no, I didn't come for that reason either. For my experience with people who believe that they have captured the truth of God is that they always put their wagons in a circle and begin to shoot at anybody that disagrees with them. And then there's a sort of note of exasperation. Well, Jesus, why did you come? And then John puts this answer into his lips. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. If the religion of Jesus ministers and mediates anything other than the life and love of God to the people of this world, it is hardly true to the message of the gospel. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, Christianity had to escape the boundaries of Judaism in the first century in order to become a universal faith. 
And now in our time, it must escape the boundaries of religion in order to have credibility and in order to draw the world unto itself. Jesus, for the non-religious, I suggest, is a doorway into that truth. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bishop Spong. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on the Nicolette Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Jim Gertmanian, Senior Minister of Plymouth Congregational Church, also in Minneapolis, and guest moderator for today's forum. Our speaker is author and theologian, Bishop John Shelby Spong. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience at Westminster, I'd like to thank the forum's many supporters, including the co-sponsor of today's event, the Plymouth Center for Progressive Christian Faith, a ministry of Plymouth Congregational Church. We invite you to listen to the Westminster Town Hall Forum on Thursday, April 26th, when theologian John Dominic Crossan joins us for his presentation, God and Empire, Jesus Against Rome, Then and Now. More information on the remaining programs in the forum's spring season is available online at eWestminster.org. Bishop Spong, if you would return to the pulpit, we will present at least a couple of questions from the audience. Let me begin with one while we're sorting these. You have described fundamentalism and Orthodox Christianity in a particular way, and you've identified it with certain spokespeople, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, etc. Um, we understand, of course, that fundamentalism, Orthodox Christianity are not monolithic, and that people in those uh, uh, expressions of Christianity uh, are across the board in, in many ways. Can you tell me what do you think those folk have to say to the non-religious or to progressive Christians. Is there a conversation that needs to go back and forth between those groups or have we gone beyond the place of being able to speak to one another? I grew up a fundamentalist and it was a very vital and important part of my security system. I grew up with an alcoholic father who died when I was 12 and with a mother who did not finish the ninth grade. I'm not sure I would have survived had I not had this very vivid fundamentalistic concept of a father God above the sky who had me by his hand and who guided me through that insecurity. But if I had not been able to escape that, I would never have grown. I find it interesting that fundamentalist churches always want us to be born again. When you're born again, you become a child and you stay there. We don't need to be born again. We need to grow up. Now, I think it's my responsibility and all Christian people's responsibility to love everybody. Their enemies, homosexuals, victims of your prejudice, and even fundamentalists. I think that's a responsibility. 
But I don't know that having a conversation where you try to enlighten a fundamentalist is very loving. My sense is that religion for far too many people is not a search for truth, it's a search for security. And so when you try to put truth into somebody's security system, you are violating that which is holding them together. So I think you love people into the ability to change, and I don't want to be in a debate with them about that. Thank you. Here's a pithy question. Why pray? Why what? Why pray? Well, that's usually the first question I get. Today it's number two. And unfortunately, you cannot answer it in this format because before you can answer that question, you've got to unload all of the presuppositions that that question has about what prayer is and how prayer works. So let me say just briefly, I don't think prayer is an adult letter written to Santa Claus. And that's the way a lot of people define it. Now that's to caricature it, and they wouldn't like that caricaturization. But that's what it is. Basically, our prayers say, Dear God, I've been a very good boy. Please do A, B, C, and D for me. And I don't think that's what prayer is all about. Let me tell you a story to illustrate it, because it would take a book to try to answer that question. I will say that I pray every day, but I understand it very differently from the way I understood it as a child. I've had the opportunity, some might call it a privilege, it's certainly a challenge, to appear on the O'Reilly Factor for at least eight times. <laughs> I really like Bill O'Reilly, uh, and that's, that's sort of strange. He actually endorsed my last book, and I said, Bill, that's going to hurt your reputation and mine. <laughs> but the price of his endorsement was that I had to appear on his program, and it was I could not appear on any other television program until I'd appeared on The O'Reilly Factor. And the, the interview was really interesting. In the middle of it, he said, Bishop, do you pray? And I said, yes, Bill, I pray every day of my life. And he said, does it work? <laughs> well, that's so typical of that kind of attitude. And I answered him by saying this, Bill, you might not be aware of it, but we have a daughter who's a captain in the United States Marine Corps. She's a helicopter pilot, and she is in her third tour of duty in the Iraq War. She's home now, but she was in her third tour of duty when I was on his program. And I pray for that child every day because I love her. But do I think for a moment that because I pray for her, that an air-to-ground missile might not bring down her helicopter? Or if her helicopter is brought down by enemy fire, will my prayers keep her from crashing to her death? If I believe that, I'd have to believe that everybody who has not survived in that war must not have had anybody praying for him or her, and I don't believe that. So I think you've got to be very careful what you intend to communicate by prayer. Uh, it simply doesn't work like magic. But to talk about how it does work would take more time than we've got today. And indeed, I don't think that's the right way to phrase the question. To talk about why prayer is essential to your own life without talking about what it might do in the world at large is just beyond the scope of our ability to discuss it. I've written about it twice, and it took me about 60 pages. I uh, commend those pages to you but I won't sound like a book salesman and tell you what book they're in.
I'm afraid that's all the time we have in this hour. For questions, thank you, Bishop John Shelby Spong. Thank you.